2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of MQ's Open Mind. We had an issue with one of our microphones this time around. So you may notice the odd bit of background noise, but this shouldn't detract from our brilliant guests. Welcome to MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Hannah Myerson. So there's a growing crisis in young people's mental health. 75% of mental illness begins before the age of 18, and three children in an average classroom are affected by a diagnosable condition. Here at MQ, we welcome the government's commitment to review mental health services for young people and increase mental health training in schools. But how can the education system play a part in solving this crisis? And how responsible are schools and teachers? I'm joined today by three people who all have a voice in this discussion. Damini, a college student with experience of anxiety and a member of MQ's Young Persons Advisory Group. Nick, who spent his career working in schools and currently steers a number of projects researching young people's mental health. And Lucy, a lecturer in psychology and education and a researcher focusing on mental illness during adolescence. Thank you very much for joining me, all of you. I want to set the scene by asking each of you what factors you think are affecting young people's mental well-being today. So what's changed today in comparison to 30 or even 10 years ago? Nick, I'll start with you.
3: Lucky me. Um, I think first and foremost is probably the recognition of um, mental health and well-being issues. I think we're much earlier in recognising when young people are struggling. And therefore early identification, um, certainly from a, a school side, comes into it. I think one of the biggest differences will be technology and young people's use of technology. And the fact they're not able to leave anything alone. It's a constant drip feed through their social media, mobile phones and, and those things. So, so maybe contrasting back um 20 30 years ago when you had a problem it kind of stayed with you and you went home with it now it's a problem that keeps getting picked away at but yeah those two things i think stand out for me
0: lucy i wonder if you felt the same way or if you felt there were any additional factors so firstly i think it's
4: a slightly open question about how much worse it has got you know adolescence has always been a period of vulnerability for developing mental health problems um, so, I think the things that made adolescents vulnerable 30 years ago are still true now. So, it's a period of massive, massive change basically, massive biological change, massive social change in terms of what's happening in your friendships and relationships. In terms of anything new that's happening, I think there's not a lot of good research on this at the moment, but certainly anecdotally, exam stress seems to be a big problem at the moment for young people. And there's the big question about social media and whether what social media is actually doing. Again, there's not much good evidence that it really is contributing to the problem, but maybe we can talk about that yeah. more. Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> definitely. And Damini, for you, someone who is much younger than all of us, what do you think is affecting young people's mental health today?
2: So what I've noticed is the entire change in the exam culture and how the entire curriculum has changed. So there's kids who do exams in Key Stage 1 now, and that means that young kids now know what stress means, which was something I didn't know until like I was in year eleven. So I think the changing curriculum, the pressure the curriculum brings, is a big difference as to what it was before. I also think there's a more of a conversation about mental health in schools now, which I know that when my brother was in school, he's much older than me, was never occurring. So I think that's a positive that's coming out of schools right now.
0: Of all of us here, you're the person that's been at school most recently. You left two years ago and you're now in college. And I wonder if you could just tell us all a bit about your time during school, so what you observed in terms of mental well-being and pressures that you just touched on.
2: I feel like there's more of an accepting atmosphere in schools towards mental health. And I found when I wanted help, it was available. But I think little thought is put behind how this help can be accessed. So to get in touch with a school counsellor, you have to go through several members of staff, which is off-putting in itself, because you have to explain something that you don't want to explain to people you don't know. I think the step has been taken to put support in, but then that support is undermined by how difficult it is to access it. So I know you spoke a bit about when you were in school and you had an experience
0: with anxiety. Would you mind talking to us a bit more about what was happening at that time and how personally you were able to access or not access help?
2: So I think I was in year eight when I realised there was something that just didn't seem right and we'd never been taught what anxiety was, that that was never a conversation at primary school, there was never a conversation when I started secondary school. So it was pretty much googling my own symptoms and then trying to find a label for it and then once I did I went to the GP and the GP said you should go talk to a counsellor at your school and that was the first time I heard about there being a school counselor and then I had to talk to a member of staff and he had to put me on a waiting list again there's so many students that are on a waiting list and it's not the school's fault it's just that there isn't the resources to provide help straight away so I eventually got an appointment with my school counselor i think it was like six appointments in total and it wasn't her but i feel like as i grew older and i came into myself more and made friends with different people, that's what made me feel better. And if I knew that I had anxiety from early on, I wouldn't think there was something wrong with me. So in terms of schools, obviously you spoke
0: about how there's a really long waiting list for the counsellor. Do you think that schools have a responsibility to be doing more? And do you think that school is a good place to start with
2: this, to tackle young people's mental health? We spend most of our childhood in the education system most of us until the age of 18. So if mental health isn't discussed in schools and young people aren't supported with their mental health and emotional well-being, that can have a detrimental impact on the rest of their lives. I feel like school is the only place to tackle mental health at the moment, especially in the climate that's created by the exam stress and things with the extreme pressures of the curriculum. Schools have the responsibility to provide their students with the that support so they can move on they can get the support that they need i suppose
0: nick that brings us really naturally on to you i wondered if you could just give us a brief overview of your teaching career and some of the things that you observed during that time
3: yeah so my um i did 20 years of um serving young people in london um various roles from advanced skills teacher through latterly to uh, deputy head teacher um, I was designated safeguarding lead so working very much at the coal faces of young people in crisis for a whole host of reasons as well as uh, mental health and well being it 's interesting demanding your perspective on school because i 'm not sure I agree with that, which is probably why you 've invited me um, but because I think um, schools schools are under a huge amount of pressure full stop and well being is an issue for For teachers as well as students. There is clearly an increase in young people in crisis and clearly a need to rethink how we do it. I don't think it's a money thing. I think if the government uh, turned around and said here's X billion pounds to solve uh, mental health issues in school, it's not going to touch it. It's not a money thing, it's it's an understanding the whole young person and it's also about rethinking what, what the purpose of education is. So there is a requirement in education that you will be tested on what you know. To go on to the next level of progression, you need to have qualifications. So a lot of the pressure starts with universities and filters down in terms of the requirements they need of young people to access their courses. And so there you can see how the trickle-down effect is in the accountability that hits schools. My my belief is that young people need adults that notice them, whether that be the the dinner lady through to the school caretaker, to teaching members of staff, backroom staff, and that, that we need to notice as adults working with young people. So I've always made um, school counselling a priority. Um, I know latterly schools have, have been charged with mental health uh, triage training and there's funding for it, which, to, to be honest, I, th- I think sits outside of what a school should do because you're dabbling with things that are quite serious um, and potentially if i if I see a young person and I've been on my training course for an afternoon or two afternoons and I use my toolkit to to work with them and then I'm still concerned or I think oh, okay we'll get through tomorrow and then that young person does something that night that's a hell of a burden to put on a teacher the um, the changes to the curriculum I think um, have a, definitely had an impact so art subjects are squeezed now and subjects where um, students would engage and explore themselves through the subject, your music, performing arts, drama, P E dance, your design technology subjects where they're they're actually more therapeutic in the learning as opposed to being rote learning and memorizing things. They've come under huge amount of pressure with the, the performance measures. The performance measures are driven by government, the They're also driven by what university want. And so the cycle continues. Um, And unless we rethink education full stop, it's not going to change.
0: I know you mentioned that you were in education and you were there for uh, quite a lot of time. And I just want to ask you if this had any impact on your decision to leave teaching.
3: Did, Did that influence my decision? I think my frustration was that I couldn't do more. You know, the school I was at had um, close to 30 open child protection cases. So I felt a huge responsibility to to all of the children I served um, and a a growing frustration that nobody's prepared to take responsibility for. So I had a a young lady who had an absolute meltdown. We had to restrain her because she was then damaging herself. She was known to social services, so we had the social worker coming into school as well. And at at one point I had uh, police social services, ambulance service and myself as designated safeguarding lead having a conversation in reception about the young person that needed help and not one agency would take responsibility for her. And uh, in the end my colleague actually took her to hospital to CAMS A&E. Now that's above and beyond what teachers should be expected to do, and I like go goose pimply thinking about it, because that's what we did, and that's what many colleagues in the profession do. And th- th- there are stories like that up and down the land. So it, it needs to rethink of what, what we want out of our education system. Do we want people that are fulfilled and can flourish, or are we going to carry on putting people through, you know, sevens and eights, a eight stars and whatever else, that's killing both the teaching side... And the goodwill in the profession, it's certainly having the impact on the well-being of young people, and actually, we we've got no service that can support either side of it.
0: I just wanted to touch on what you mentioned about the impact that this has not just on young people in schools, but also on teachers and their own well-being. I wondered if you had any experience of that, or if you've helped any colleagues with experience of that.
3: My first first real experience was um, I was a PE teacher and was presented with a boy that wouldn't get changed for pe which you know happens uh, it's not everyone's favorite subject and when um i spoke to him about it he was covered in about 150 cigarette burns i will never forget that it was uh, something he said his mum did because she loved him and you know that's you know that's meat and drink sadly teachers experience that all of the time so you live, that, that lives with you, with every child or young person that you're dealing with in crisis or in a, a safeguarding uh, situation. And you, you everyone has different mechanisms in coping with that. Schools are becoming more aware of the need for supervision. So uh, I was lucky enough to have a safeguarding officer for a period of time who I made sure had proper supervision with um, a trained uh, counsellor. For her. But it, it's hard for teachers dealing with those on the front line, but it's hard for teachers in education, full stop. Teachers are aware of, of where young people are more often than not. What they don't have is the capacity, the skills to, to maybe support and unpick that.
0: I guess before we go on to Lucy, who obviously has a completely different angle from the two of you, I wondered why, given everything that you've just talked about, why you think that research is important in this area, what do you hope that research could help achieve?
3: Oh, I'm going to might upset Lucy now. Do I need research to tell me there's a mental health epidemic with young people in schools? No. The teacher lives and breathes that every day of their life. What we need research to do is inform us in the best ways and the most impactful ways to support those young people at those times or to look for predeterminants or risk factors that would indicate to us that maybe we need to be doing a little more there earlier to try and then mitigate some of the moments when it becomes too much to handle.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Damini, what about you? I'd say research is answers. And um, with the projects that we hear about at MQ, that research is so vital to evaluating those risk factors and to predict, almost predict, who is at most risk. And I think that sort of thing can change an entire young person's life. So Lucy,
0: I suppose that brings us to you. Um, I wondered if you could talk to us a bit about the research that you do and from a personal perspective, what motivated you to, to get into that field?
4: Well, I've always been interested in mental health from when I did uh, psychology as an undergraduate. Um, and then I did some research experience in a child anxiety clinic when I finished my degree. And so from there, I just became more interested in the research side of it. I did a PhD, but then from there, I moved more into uh, adolescent mental health. Uh, worked on a big project which is still ongoing about teaching uh mindfulness in schools and whether that can help reduce the risk of developing mental health problems because i think um what you brought up is really interesting about the idea that um ideally we want to get in before it's even started to kind of give people tools to kind of reduce their own risk of uh, mental illness developing
0: and i know the the project you just talked about so it's the myriad project yeah. And I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about that and why this idea was tested in the first place. So I was explaining what mindfulness
4: is because Mood is all about teaching mindfulness. And I think it's been a word that's been thrown around quite a lot, but people don't necessarily know what it is. So, mindfulness is essentially a form of attention training. It's about teaching yourself to focus on the present. With the idea that if you spend too much time thinking about the past, then that's kind of linked to depression. And if you spend too much time thinking about the future, that can be linked to anxiety. So actually kind of the most psychologically healthy place to be is to exist in the present. And that's not even just like, what am I doing today? But it's the idea of like, right now, this instant, you know, can you feel your feet on the floor? like? Can you notice what thoughts are going through your mind. Um, What can you hear? What can you see around you? Being very present in this moment. Now, some people are naturally more mindful than others. We're all kind of on a, a spectrum of it, but it's a skill that you can teach, and you teach it by meditating. And this isn't new. This has been around for thousands of years, but actually in the last kind of 30 years or so, people have become more interested in how it's linked to mental health, particularly if you have and had several episodes of depression in the past and you learn mindfulness when you're well, it reduces the risk of having a relapse, of having another episode of depression. Mindfulness is already being taught in schools. There's an awful lot of enthusiasm in some schools for mindfulness. Um, but actually, the evidence, before Myriad, the evidence base wasn't great. So lots of people were teaching uh, mindfulness without really knowing exactly what it was doing. And I would say this is where research is really important because, you know, at best it's not doing anything, but at worst it could actually be harmful. So we need, we need big trials and lots and lots of people to kind of scientifically evaluate how effective mindfulness is and whether it's doing what people kind of anecdotally say it might be doing. How big is the scale of this? So in the several different arms of but the big main trial is about 6,000 adolescents, 11 to 14 year olds in that part, because ideally it's just before mental illness begins.
0: What do we know about why so much mental illness starts in adolescence? You know, there's obviously the figure that we all use, about 75% of mental illness starting before 18. From science, what have we seen that can explain why this happens?
4: So I think basically it's that there's a massive period of change, kind of every facet of your life is changing in adolescence. So before the advent of MRI imaging, so about 20-25 years ago, we generally thought that the brain stopped developing in childhood. We now know that that's not true and there's a massive amount of uh, development that's happening in the brain. In adolescence, so by that I mean the teenagers and into the 20s and possibly even into the 30s. So um, one thing, for example, the parts of your brain in the prefrontal cortex, which is in uh, the front of your brain, that are involved with things like emotion regulation, and decision making and planning, we know that those parts of the brain aren't fully developed in adolescence. So that's why you see symptoms like people reacting very emotionally to things or being moody or taking risky decisions for example. That's all linked to the fact that their brain is still developing. And there's also a big social shift in terms of how much you care about what your peers think um, and how uh, susceptible you are to social influence and peer pressure. So it's kind of like a big melting pot of social and biological factors which increases your risk of mental illness.
0: I suppose, you know, I've asked Amini and Nick, both of them who have different opinions slightly on whether schools are a good setting for these interventions to take place. Uh, I think we can probably all agree they're not the only setting certainly, but from what you've seen in the research that you've done, do you think they're a good starting point?
4: I think it's, it's such a complicated question and I was thinking that when you guys were talking about this... It can never, it should never ever be a replacement for the NHS and certainly when we are talking about serious mental health problems, absolutely it's not a school's job to deal with that and it's certainly not teachers' jobs who are not trained in being, you know, clinicians and therapists. But I do think there's a role that school has to play in terms of teaching young people how to cope with negative experiences, I suppose. Because I think, like, you know, this is where they go every single day, this is where children are but I also think it's a big question about in order for this to really happen we need to really shift about what we think education is and what we think schools are and what are the goals that we want for people coming out of, out of school
0: and I suppose that harks back to what you were saying Nick. you know do we want the goals to be well-rounded people who know how to navigate themselves through a difficult situation or is it the goal that they go through all these hoops they pass the test they get onto the next stage or is there a world where those two goals can sit side by side?
3: Yes. Is there a world where they can sit side by side? And I think partly it's how we view children. Now we're recognising that they're, they're complicated young people. So now we've got to change our mindset, how we deal with that. Of course you can develop you know, well-rounded, um, stunning young people that are well-balanced and are going on make making um, amazing contributions and get qualifications that enable them to do that. That's a, if a, if all factors supporting that individual are there, um, in terms of family and environment and all of those things. The moment you start moving away from the average, as it were, and move to the periphery, those factors aren't there. That becomes a completely different set of experiences for the young person. And so you know we don't we we don't teach average children. It'd be great. Well, would it be great if we did? I don't know. We don't teach average, do we?
0: We've talked about the kids that have participated but we haven't really spoken about the teachers and I wondered the reaction that you got from the teachers when you approached them for their schools to take part in I the was study just thinking then some
4: people that we approached said they didn't want to be involved because what we were asking was that they would take one hour a week for the children and adolescents who are taking part and uh, for a mindfulness class and some people said no they didn't want their school to take part because they didn't want that hour taken away from studying which is so frustrating because it's not one or the other it's not the idea that actually if if you take out time to look after someone's mental health and well-being that then they will perform worse i mean it's not it's not true if you have children adolescents who are depressed we know they perform less well they spend less time in school etc so i really think there's this pervading idea for for some heads not all of them that they don't want to waste time on mental health and i think that's such a shame on the other hand we have other teachers who were kind of jumping at it because it was like free mental health support. So we had a mixture, you know, we did not have difficulty recruiting for the study because, you know, lots and lots of schools do care about mental health and they're desperate for more help.
3: It's, in, it's interesting, it's, it goes back to the values, I think, of um, of, of the school or the organisation because I spent a lot of time with Year 11 and year 30 talking about well-being and managing stress and if you construct your timetable accordingly you, you can head those things off by, by spending time on well-being and mindfulness and and a more therapeutic outlets. So we we, um, we developed a sensory room because uh, we recognised that we had some vulnerable young people that needed somewhere where they, they could go and just have time out. And the, um, I mean, I'll give you an Im- the impact, and, and I'm very mindful in, in how I qualify these figures. So when I started at the school, exclusions, fixed-term exclusions, were around 197. So as I finished at the school, we'd got them down to, I think, 48 was the lowest in a year. Now, one of the reasons I wholeheartedly believe is because at that point, we increased the counselling provision, we had the sensory room, and we made it a priority you know that we need to it's a it's a mindset and value shift that so that everyone notices and i think you know it. the irony of, of of what you describe lazy is that you end up trying to backfill it in the exam years because you haven't addressed it earlier down the pipeline as it were
4: and the, the term that the turn often comes up about the kind of best approach for school mental health is whole school approach and it sounds like exactly what you're describing like it's it's not about having an hour of you know a couple of hours of PSHE on mental health a turn but actually it's about everyone being on the same page about mental health and that means all staff um, you know it means having an approach that kind of pervades throughout the whole school ethos about supporting well-being
0: you've spoken a lot about and it's something that I think we need to appreciate that every child is different and With that being said, Lucy, do you think that things like myriad where you're teaching mindfulness, can that be a one size fits all approach? Are there ways that despite all of these complexities, there can be sort of blanket rules that we can bring to schools to improve mental health?
4: I think it probably works very well for some people and less well for other people, and we don't have a good understanding of that yet, but the idea about myriad of mindfulness that's different stuff that's come before is that it it is trying to teach everyone these skills. It's not just people who are unwell who could benefit from mental health support. You know, everyone has mental health that could could potentially be improved. There's no one-size-fits-all, and I think maybe part of what schools need to do going forward is to help. Young people work out what is it for them that's helpful for managing stress. And um, the exercise, you know, we know from massive studies with adults that exercising is protective for mental health problems. And there's interesting stuff going on at Reading at the moment about um, exercise for um, protecting against adolescent depression. It's not going to be the same thing for everyone, but I think exercise is a big, simple thing that we know
3: helps. And it's, and it's also about fun. You know, we've talked a, a lot about education. You know, so I've talked a lot. Obviously, where's fun? We seem to have lost that element of of learning because we're focusing so much on on outcomes and do you know it and this uh, pressure to have had whether it's a knowledge based curriculum or whatever. Where's where? What about the fun based curriculum? Where's where's the um, that you know the excitement around creating something or doing something or or actually getting something so blazingly wrong that you laugh at yourself and think, God, did I really just do that in front of all my friends? You know that seems that that's gone, and uh, and it's a shame because it impacts on there is no outlet, and if you're not laughing or having those fun moments in your school day, it's actually quite a bleak bleak yeah. place to be. Yeah,
0: and damily I can see you nodding along. It's worth asking you if if that's something that you experienced and you know now that you're at college is that a different atmosphere do you feel like that creative outlet is perhaps encouraged more
2: I definitely say the creative outlet is expressed more in college and I think that's just the way teachers in colleges talk to their young people so every single teacher I have looks at me as a young person as a student more as a child and we have those conversations and we have that relationship which is why I'd say we do bring that fun element back into lessons and it's okay to get something wrong. Whereas I think in secondary schools currently, the climate is very much exams and that pressure's too much. I think that's just excluded fun out of the curriculum.
0: So I'd like to move on now. We referred to our supporters for some questions. One of them from a lot of parents was this idea that alongside this, growing crisis in young people's mental health there was also the idea that we're talking about this terminology a lot more you know kids today know what the words anxiety are associated with and and likewise with depression and what a lot of people wanted to ask is is there a danger there that the more we talk about mental health the more people will feel attached to things we're describing and perhaps become more anxious about you know normal adolescent emotions than they need to
4: I think part of what's so complicated about mental health at the moment is exactly what you just described is that well when we see some reports of increase in um, mental health symptoms that at least part of that could be that people are labelling things as anxiety or um, other mental health problems which might not previously have been labelled as that and perhaps shouldn't be labelled as a mental health problem. And I think we're, but we're in this weird period at the moment where at one end you have this where um, possibly people are call, calling just kind of everyday stress, transient stress Um they're starting to think of it in terms of mental illness but also we still have, you know, high suicide rates and self-harm and people who, you know, these horrendous cams, waiting lists. I'd be very surprised if it was creating mental health problems. Yeah. Um, I think it's more possibly that for some people that, that it's been kind of mislabeled, but I'd, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if it was creating mental illness that didn't exist before.
2: Yeah, like I don't think talking about it in TV shows and young people you know watching it I don't think that causes mental illness I think it just tells young people what mental illness is and if they relate to that if that is something that's happened to them it's just created a window in which they can find out what's happening to them and if that might be why there's a rise in mental health because people know what's happening to them now
4: and that's a good thing like actually even if the the kind of downside is that it's like over over labelling We're still at a period where lots of people are not getting support, so I think it's still worth having all these conversations, even if it means it's a slight risk that we
0: incur, I think. And we talked about it right at the very beginning of this conversation, but there was never going to be a question that didn't refer to social media. (laughs) Obviously social media is something that people use more. It's it's been associated with a lot of research, both good and bad so I suppose Lucy from from what you've seen are there any determinate answers about social media and its impact can it be good can it also be bad
4: um so firstly it can it can be good and bad and I think often people just focus on the bad sides there's lots of benefits of social media so in terms of social communication and friendship for example everything that we see in real life friendships can be replicated with friendships online um in terms of um, you know, self-disclosure and having fun, for example. so actually a lot of, for a lot of people social media is fun. So I think that kind of gets forgotten. There is, so there's some evidence that people who use social media more have more depressive symptoms, but that doesn't mean that social media is causing depression and this is what gets really modeled up somewhere along the way. Um, it could also be that people who are depressed are using social media more. It could also be the third thing like for example so if people can't sleep um because that's a symptom of depression then also they'll go on social media more i've not seen anything convincing that suggests that the social media use comes first and causes mental health problems i think for some individuals who are already at risk using social media in certain ways can exacerbate some symptoms um but i think the those symptoms would have existed Anyway, I think the thing about social media is that it's just a new, it's a new platform for adolescents and adults to do what they were already doing anyway. It's just a slightly different
0: format. Drawing to the end, and I think you've all brought some really interesting insights. I wanted to try and end it on a more hopeful, optimistic note. And I just wanted to ask each of you, in a perfect world, what do you think are our next steps? And these don't have to be steps that you think are necessarily realistic for the here and now. But if you were to ideally move forward, what would you hope we can achieve, and what would you try and do next?
3: I think um, I think I'd go back to you know the, really reflecting on what the purpose of school is, what we want out of that. Are we making sure that there's a breadth in, of experience, so we're not just getting bogged down in the um, the number crunching exam type experience that um, you know young people undoubtedly go through, um, and, and and really valuing um, you know how we value individuals within that so recognizing that that maybe maybe we need to be allowed to go through school at the speed that's right for us not everyone's got to get to this point by 16 because then we start the next bit and then we do the next bit and we put incredible amount of pressure on teachers and young people because we've got to squeeze everyone through these pressure points and you know if we if we're not um, maturing at the same rate as the rest of our peers and I know um, there's lots of research about summer born babies versus winter born. um you know those are big those are those are are big determinants on school experience so um you know my i suppose my utopia would be to sort of really sort of reflect on what that was going to be and how all of those um facets you know play together you know undoubtedly schools care deeply about the children they serve and uh, you know keep doing that with um with maybe a, a different approach to what what that means for both teachers and uh, young people,
0: definitely. And Damini, what's your schooltopia look like in an ideal world? Um,
2: my schooltopia, um, my real schooltopia is a lot different to what I'm going to say now. But um, I'd say I know that Nick doesn't believe it's funding, but I do think funding does play a huge role in what schools can offer, and. In an ideal world, if we had that funding, we had um, teachers that were appreciated, teachers that were paid well, teachers that were not as stressed as they are now, and having those teachers and that whole system work together effectively to help those young students throughout the entire time they're in the education system, and whether that's in, yes, school, the whole purpose of school is to achieve something, you know, you go to school to get grades, but having you know life lessons kind of put into there i think that's that's my ideal schooltopia
0: lucy what about you i'm trying to think i think three
4: things i think all schools should have school counselors which means there's easy access to support um i would like schools to place more emphasis on teaching young people how to cope with stress because it's not just school, like life is like a series of potentially stressful events and it doesn't, you know, that doesn't go away. And stress can precede mental health problems. So actually, um, one of the key things, I think a key role of a school should be to teach children and adolescents ways of managing stress. And the third thing is more funding for camps. I think that the pressure would be relieved from schools if we had a system, you know, in an ideal world, Wouldn't it be brilliant if a young person had a mental health problem, they could get assessed and they could get help from the NHS. It's absolutely appalling the waiting times that that they're going through or they're being turned away altogether. So I think if if this is an ideal utopia, if we could solve that, I think um, there would be a lot of pressure relief from schools.
0: Definitely. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you all so, so much for joining me. And a huge thank you to Kemp Little, MQ's corporate partner, who've been so kind as to host us today. And finally, to all of you, thank you so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you do have any thoughts or feedback, please get in touch. And remember, if you've been affected by anything you've heard, the Samaritans are always available on 116 123.